Welcome to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast with your hosts, James Marshall and Liam McRae, where we will be diving deep into the issues of modern masculinity, seduction, dating, lifestyle design, sexuality, psychedelics, you name it. This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. All right, gentlemen, what's up? It's James Marshall sitting in my samurai robe and denim shirt, which is that a good fashion choice? I don't know. I don't care. I'm in quarantine. How you doing? This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast, and today I am joined by an extra special guest. They're always special, but this one just feels even more special. An old friend of mine. No, she's not old. She's, I've known her for a long time, and uh, we've had some very cool adventures together. She's um, in a relationship with, a friend, with another friend of mine, but she's her own person. She's not the wife of a friend of mine. She's a badass, and uh, I also think her husband's awesome. So I've been hanging out with this pair on and off over the years. We've met up in strange places like Serbia and Miami and I don't know where else. And uh, I'd like to introduce you. So this is Saida Desolets. How are you doing? Desolets. I'm doing great. Excellent. Now, Saida, my audience doesn't know you. I don't think we've ever, you've never been on any of our things. We were planning on getting you to come and speak at the AMC this year, but that's not happening. Obviously. Um, yes, <laughs> obviously. So tell us, uh, tell my guys, who are you and why am I talking to you? Yeah, so I'm Dr. Sayeda Desile and I have been called a counterculture creatrix, which I guess we'll see if that's true or not as we progress with the conversation. Like a body philosopher, so someone who just really loves the wisdom and power of the body. So a lot of my work has to do with the body, especially the female body. And an author, I've been on TEDx, I talked about desire there, and dedicated my whole life basically to the topic of sex, pleasure, orgasm, more from the perspective of women, but I, in the past I didn't get to teach men, and I just love the topic, I adore you, and I wanted to say something, because I swear one of your guys ran up to me in a mall in Melbourne and did the whole James Marshall thing. And I just was so delighted. I mean, it was so sweet and I couldn't believe what was going on. And I couldn't tell him that I knew you, but I walked away going, that was a James. And I loved it. It was, it just lit, lit me up, lit up my day. And I'm just really grateful for all that you bring to men and also to the women. Yeah. Thank you, Seda. That means a lot coming from you, especially. Okay, so the, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because you're a voice on the other side, on the female in the female camp, who is as as you just described a counterculture. What was that? Counterculture creatrix. Creatrix. I don't know what that means, but I get the general idea, and I'm, yes, I think that is you. You're you're a person who is I would describe you as extremely strong, very independent, very like rational thinker. You spend a lot of time thinking and breaking down. Uh, sexuality relationships from a different perspective than I have, um, you know, dealing more with women and dealing uh, with other aspects that uh, I want to want to talk to you about. But one of the things, one of the things I think is cool is that you, from what I can see, don't really hold an ideological position. I, I mean, I guess we all have some forms of ideologies that we like to dabble in. You know, I'm a sometimes Buddhist and a sometimes liberal, sometimes capitalist. You know, I, I have various um, shades of that. But you're someone who I've never heard, like you've gotten into hot water with women before, right? Because you haven't said what is the right thing to say at the time of the oh, yes. post. I'm um, literally considered an anti-feminist. Okay. Tell us about that. <laughs> 
Well, I'm anti-feminist supposedly because I actually believe that women are powerful. And to be a feminist right now, you have to believe that women are victims. And I know we're going to talk more about this, but I, I don't agree at all that women are victims. I do know that we all have victimized experiences, men and women, but to hold the stance, I think it's insulting actually to be considered because I'm female, I'm a victim. Right. It's incredibly irritating. So if that makes me anti-feminist, I happily receive that label. Okay. Yeah. Because, well, remind me, there was something recently that you said or wrote in a post that got some, some kickback, right? Can you remind me what that was? Gosh, I don't know because I do get oh, fairly regular feedback uh, so from from people, and it was probably had to do. There was a, a and we're going to talk about this as well. There, when this idea of toxic masculinity came out, there was an article released by the New York Times. It was written by I think a lesbian woman author, and then I don't know how the man identified himself, but a guy. And as I read this article, I was horrified because the central theme to the how do we rid the planet of toxic masculinity was to castrate every living male literally or metaphorically literally oh. so i shuddered right down to the very essence of my being and went f no can i you swear like, on no hard cocks anywhere ever oh no 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 not we'll, for me <laughs> we will not be doing that can we keep, like a, a, can we keep a corral of them like <laughs> left or something or? <laughs> Well, you don't really need one, according to certain people. You just need sperm banks. So whatever. Anyways, that's not my reality that I want to live in. So I actually went on. I did an hour and a half Facebook live diving into this. And obviously it was controversial because it goes against the narrative and it's just not the world that I wish to live in. So that's why I'm happy to be here today, because I do want to talk about what is healthy masculinity? Why is it so enjoyable to be around that and why we need it as well as all the other facets that you want right, to Right, Yeah, that's something I wanted to, because I was thinking about this in the garden the other day, because the, the idea of toxic mas masculinity comes up in various forms. And for, in, when, in my um, information bubble, when, when that, when that is a cue, when that phrase is a cue pointed inwards, it's me, it's immediately met with extreme defense, right? So it's like, and kind of understandably, right? So if we, if, if the general thing is you're being told that masculinity isn't an in and of itself toxic, like that's the, that's the inherent argument there, right? I mean, it's a very extreme argument. I'm sure, you know, not most women don't want to cut the balls off all men, but, um, but it's, it's kind of like the end point of a, of an ideology that says that the male maleness is dangerous. You know, that's, that's, that's its inherentness that it has all of these very volatile, dangerous elements within it. And those things need to be compressed and controlled. And, and my thoughts on that is that there are absolutely elements of masculinity that are toxic and they're not just random. There's, there's patterns and there's, and there's institutionalized behaviors. There's brutalization that's passed down from father to son. There's all sorts of things that, that bring out the, the worst aspects of maleness, but that, and you know, you've just hinted at it, that there's, you know, talking about that we were just talking briefly before the call that there is you know, there's a, there's something that a woman needs, right? And that's, that's actually a question I could ask you is why do women need men? You know, if we, if, if the truth is that you could have a sperm bank and you can have dildos, right? You can have the functions of a man kind of replaced theoretically in some dystopian brave new world. But, but aside from that, why do women need men at all? Yeah, that's a great question. And 
You know, often I like to answer these questions more from a person place. And so before I answer that, I want to answer what you said before, before they're on toxic masculinity. And I, I just, I want us at some point on this conversation to list what do we think and believe it's toxic and why is that solely a masculine thing? Because I think if we're going to say a human being has these toxic attributes, it doesn't matter the gender. Those things are going to show up no matter the gender. So I first think that that's important to establish that this is an issue of people, mostly probably uninitiated people, people who have been raised in trauma, people who maybe just didn't have whatever the resources to learn and grow and mature emotionally. And then it does lead to these behaviors that have now been labeled toxic. So I want to get back to that after I answer this question of why do women need men? But it's so important to understand that this is a, across the board, a human issue if we make it one. Right. So Cause I wanted to discuss what is toxic femininity as well. Cause that's, a, that's what I was thinking. There are elements and patterns of women that are toxic and men. And those are elements that need to be addressed individually in relationships or broader scope, I guess. But it's not, you know, it's not just the entire gender or the entire essence of male or female. That's the problem. Exactly. So why do women need men? It's an interesting question because I'm just going to frame this with what I do. So one of the main things I do is I love to invite women and that's people if I'm teaching uh, mixed gender, but women into sexual sovereignty. Now that scares people for multiple reasons, but one of the ways it can scare people is like, well, if she doesn't need anybody sexually, why, you know, what's the point? It's not about that. Sexual sovereignty is more about having um, dominion over your own body, the mastery over knowing yourself, being free to know your desires, express your desires, to know your own body so well that you can self-generate ecstatic states. And no matter the skill level of your partner, you can actually create an incredible experience for yourself and maybe even for them if you're feeling generous, right? So, <laughs> so <that laughs> there the is a generosity. Like, oh, I'm awesome at sex. And, like, and you're like, mm, you're awesome at letting me be awesome at sex. <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, there's just very, there's different levels of skill and there's different levels of confidence. Sexual sovereignty invites kind of an ongoing lifelong relationship with something that shouldn't have an age, to be honest. Sexuality, like the beating of your heart, you know, it's, it's there when you're a fetus until the last breath. So it's, it's very important to, to look at that. So if we are sexually sovereign women, we don't technically need anybody. I can orgasm happily on my own. I can have even what I call cosmic orgasms on my own. So what's the point? And James, I, when I took myself through a lot of these practices in the early days, I changed a lot from a sexual predator to someone who was a lot more conscious. And in that transformation, I remember just, you know, coming to a point of like, well, why, how could I ever have a relationship with another human. This is so good. (laughs) And I don't have to deal with all the drama and, you know, it's just so good. And it dawned on me, it's not about my orgasm. Mm -hmm. It's about coming into relationship with the mystery itself through another. And I can't predict what will happen because now there's this mysterious factor of other. And I personally am oriented myself heterosexually. So It's not that I need men, but I want them Mm -hmm. because the dance of that mystery that arises with whether it's just a look or a dance on the dance floor or all the way to a full blown sexual experience, 
it's that dance that I'm interested in. It's that sexual tension. It's the what's next, what's going to arise. Can I be completely open to feeling and sensing this? So it's less need, it's desire, it's want, it's choice. And, and then to take that to a wider range of orientation, then it would just mean for everybody, we don't need anyone in that sense. Uh, we get to want them. We get to desire them. We get to play in this realm of sexual amazingness together. And that's why I try and reorient women instead of looking to sex as a place where they, they need to get, you know, their, their 50 orgasms a day status, whatever it is, the, the number. And they get really disappointed if they only get to 49, mm-hmm. which is really a lot of weight on a partner no matter what gender the partner is. Yeah, dude's like, what? I have to give her 50 orgasms a day? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. So, but what if you come in already, have accomplished your, you know, ratio that you would like to accomplish every day? You're full, you're gourmet, you're not a beggar, you're not, you know, begging for something. You're actually going, look, I have, I'm full and I want to play with you from this full place. Let's see what can happen. And if orgasm doesn't happen, you don't care because what's happening is something else. Deep connection, play, maybe even profound emotional experience. Who knows? Because it's all different. You can even have, you know, transcendent sexual experiences are very common. So those things are what coming together is truly about, not about mutual masturbation that leads to one or three, you know, orgasms. So we have to shift. um, Sorry, do you think it is... Like you've talked about, okay, what is the point of the other then is, is the excitement, the mystery, the unknown, the dance between those two uh, or three. Do you think that there is something inherent about it being a male and a female? Of course, there's all sorts of combinations. People are into all sorts of things, but we're talking mainly about heterosexual guy, heterosexual girl, or mainly heterosexual people. Is there something then about the manness of him as opposed to, okay, it's just a really sexy, but you know, hermaphrodite or. Lesbian chick. Like, okay, what's the so difference? Gonna, if, Does it matter? Yes, if we look strictly at the the heterosexual lens, which is ninety eight point something percent of the entire human population, right? It, it, there, there's like a lot of people have this orientation. Well, maybe it's Sorry, a little you less. Mean, you there's, mean that there's only one point something percent of of card carrying? I'm only gay. I'm only lesbians. I'm only strictly on like right. that side. I don't know. Maybe it's high, it's lower, but in terms of like cisgender that's more what i'm talking about like i'm female identify as female you're male you identify as male now we're going to interact that's a very high in the percentile right. there's not a lot of people who sit in the trans point so i'm going to address that large percentile of people who are happy with the gender they're born into and then we're going to look heterosexual is probably a lot less but i was referring to cisgender okay, uh, so i made the mistake so now we're going to look at this dynamic and i'm going to talk from me Personally, because I think that's oh, very important sorry. in terms of embodied play. Just to let people know, because a lot of my audience doesn't know what cisgender means. They've heard it and they're like, I'm annoyed immediately hearing that. From what I understand. Oh, me too. I get annoyed with it. Yeah, just I don't even want to use it. It means a male that looks like a male that fucks women, a woman that looks like a woman that fucks men. Something like that? No, it's no. cisgender is simply you identify with the gender that you were labeled as. So oh, if I'm born, I look female. And I oh, actually yes, feel I'm female. Let's be honest. <laughs> so I identify with the the gender I was, you know, labeled as. 
that's cisgender. So when, when that match, when it's the match, it's not about heterosexualness. It's about identifying with the actual. So you're born a boy and you think you're a boy and you're okay with being a boy. Then that's a cisgender. I think it's totally stupid. You're a guy. I'm a woman and that's it in my realm. But because it's out there, I kind of like to bring these terms because we're going to hear those terms and how do we make sense of them? Personally, I never use them when I refer to myself. I think it's good to like it's good to have our terms defined and for people to be able to navigate the you know the terminology that people are dealing with today. So yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you're then you're not feeling like an idiot when there's all this weird stuff going on around you because you know, I've been to plenty of professional conferences where the speakers you know their identity labels go on for like two minutes. I'm like I don't care. The only time I would care to hear that is if I wanted to fuck you. So it, the fact that you're, I'm listening to a, a professional lecture from a professor, I don't care. I don't need to know any of that stuff about you. So, so anyways, you have to remind me where we were now. We were. Um, oh, yes. Why maleness? Oh, yes. Why right? do you need a man as opposed to just another humanoid? Okay. Well, as a woman who loves men, there's something in men that just doesn't exist in women. You have facial hair for one. You have cocks for another. Like there's these features that are fascinating to me as a female. I don't have them. I want to play with them. I want to look at them. I want to interact with them. Then there's qualities of maleness that I love. I love this protective quality, even though I'm fierce. I can completely protect myself. I'm trained in martial arts and in other things. When there's a man around and I can feel his protective energy, I feel like I can relax and I'm not in that hyper vigilant place, which I need to be as a woman often in the world. And I can soften and relax and be more playful because he's got my back. Mm-hmm. I love that. If I'm alone in a group of women, I am that person. Right. Because most of the women are entrained to be so afraid of any kind of aggression that they'll freeze. And I've had gangs who have surrounded myself and a girlfriend who wanted to rape us. And she froze and I broke the nose of the, you know, the leader of the pack, let's say, and off they went. And then I dealt with her. But a lot of women are not brought up to have healthy aggression. So I think that for me, I'm fascinated with healthy aggression. I'm fascinated with the beast in the man. Not the unclaimed beast, because that's very scary. I don't like men who say they're nice men and they haven't claimed their beast, because to me, that is a form. If we have to, I don't even want to use the word toxic, James, like we can go there, but just think it's a stupid word. Maybe immature masculinity or something. It's just unclaimed. It's Mm -hmm. like, if you don't claim it, it's got you Mm -hmm. and it can act out at any time. And you're a lot bigger and stronger than me. So no matter what I do, I mean, I was violently raped at some point in my youth and there was nothing I could do. He was such a big guy that in the position that I was in, it was impossible for me to do anything other than bite his fucking hand, which I did (laughs) until something changed. But I, I think I left teeth scars on his hand. But anyways, so there's when it's claimed, however... And you know that you can be violent and horrible and you choose not to, everything in my body relaxes. Mm. And then when it comes to sex, the beast is available because I don't always want sweet romantic stuff. I do like that. But sometimes 
certain times of the month in a female cycle, you want more beastly awareness. The beast is available and on call. Exactly. Yes, I like it. And, and uh, when I actually met my partner, he had been with many women who don't didn't appreciate the beast, let's say. So he had never really fully come out. And I think it was maybe our third or fourth time together. And I grabbed him by the throat. And I was like, bring him out. Just bring him out. Because if you don't, I can't trust you. And then this his beast arrived. And I was like, what's that like as a woman seeing a man's transformation? Because like, I love, I love when I meet a girl and I, and I'm like, one day we're going to have sex. And I'm like, and you know, there's right now she's a lady there and then there's something in her that's going to come out. I'm going to reveal that. Like, what's it like on the other side when you're like, okay, there's a nice man being a nice man. And then you, and then, you know, but you've, there must be something that you can tell that guy's claimed his beast or that guy hasn't, or maybe a feeling or something. But what's it like to see that transformation, that Jekyll and Hyde thing, when done well? (laughs) (laughs) It's not even Jekyll and Hyde when it's claimed. It's Jekyll and Hyde when it's unclaimed. So because I asked for it, he was already consciously in contact with it, but it never, he never felt it was appropriate to bring it into scenario because a lot of the ladies just didn't want that. So when it emerged, I actually, like I said, I deeply relaxed and a huge level of trust rose in my being. And I surrendered more than I'd ever surrendered to any other man at that point. And it, that's why we're, you know, 13 years later, we're, you know, it's still amazing. So, so that's because there's this place I can't tame in him. I can't touch in him. It's his wildness and it's his, there's, it's not, I could never claim it no matter, you know, what I try and do because you, the second you claim it, you jail it. I want to, I want to pause you there. Cause this is an important point. I think uh, if we, if we make, cause we wanted to talk about what a toxic masculinity and femininity, it might be good that I think they're just going to pop out. And one, I think one of them did just pop out there, which is you have, I know that I, I don't know a lot about your relationship, but from observing it from the outside, I know that you guys give each other a lot of autonomy. You know, I, I first met your partner soul when we met in Thailand for a whole month. It was just like our mutual friend Shay had said, you guys should meet up. Let's, and, and so he did. He came and he spent a whole month with us eating coconuts and talking weird shit. And that's something that I think many girlfriends or wives or partners wouldn't want and, and vice versa. And it's not just about the time and the distance. It's that you guys, I think, understand that for, for this to remain vital and passionate, that you need to be able to do your own things. You need to be able to have outside friends and to trust each other to, and, and to encourage, like what you've said there is you're encouraging him to be untamed in the sense that, and I think that would be a toxic femininity point is the, the desire to tame the man or to neuter the man, which not all women do, but a lot, a lot attempt to do in some way or another, especially like if he's a bit wild, <laughs> you know, it's that the, the that there, there's an impulse to like, okay, I want to lock that guy down in some way. And I don't want that wildness to be present because then he might leave me or he might have an affair or he might suddenly become passionate about something and travel the world or something like that. Would you say that's a common thing you see with women who are trying to control men? I know men do it to women in different ways as well. Sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's a few things happening there is that most likely that who they're interacting with control issues come up for everybody because they're, you know, we're all in kind of insecure and weird. And if we really like somebody, we're like, Oh my God, we want them to stick around. But if I really like them then everyone else must really like them. And my partner's very magnetic. So a lot of women oh, he is sexy as fuck. <laughs> yeah. So occasionally I've had to be territorial, mm-hmm. but not because of him. Right. 
It's just that I didn't feel seen by the ladies. So, so that's, that's something that we're missing now actually culturally with women. So another toxic thing from, for, for women, it would be like, say you introduce your best friend to your girl and your best friend will be like, wow, I'd love a woman like that. Not your girl, but a woman like her. A woman, however, introduces to her best friend, a woman best friend, her man and the woman, her best friend could just say, I want him specifically. I've, I've that- seen that as a common thing. And, and one, one um, coach phrased it in a way that I thought really hit home was that women have the ability to be close friends with someone they don't trust at all. Whereas men will not do that, right? Like a group of men that if, if, if I can't trust Liam to be alone with my girlfriend or whatever, we can't be friends. Right. But a woman can know that she is a backstabbing bitch and she would give him half a chance, but we'll still hang out together and, and manage that. What's going on there? Is that true? Or is what's <laughs> it's not true for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe true when women haven't really dealt with their own shadow, their own, you know, insecurities their own, and they're just, this is a cool female I should be friends with because she's kind of cool and everybody likes her. So I should be friends with her mm. versus really having, so the, the injury that we do to young women in the beginning of kind of their life is we don't teach them that they have the right to boundaries and they have the right to define what's not negotiable in all their relationships. We don't teach them that. So they kind of just want to be agreeable. They're brought up to be agreeable and like everyone and be nice with everyone. And that is becomes a huge shadow later because if you agree to everything and you're always very nice, you're obviously overriding you know, your own needs, your own boundaries, et cetera, et cetera. It's so like I don't know. Yes, exactly. And if you do, you know, personality tests, there's a large amount. I don't remember what it is. 70% of women will be test very high in agreeableness mm-hmm. and um, men test a lot higher in disagreeableness. And of course, an essentialist would say that that's because women are like that, right? Yeah. And I actually, <laughs> my argument when I hear this, or essentially we have to be in some ways, you know, imagine if you're completely disagreeable trying to raise an infant, it would be impossible. You'd kill the thing. You can't have that. You have to have traits where you can put up with a lot of crap from young, cute, annoying things <laughs> in order to, for those things to grow and survive. Like, so and in order there for is people an, not to kill them in, in the immediate surroundings. So right. Smile, so there, at it, smile at all the big monkeys. There is a biological reason for for also agreeableness. It's not just social conditioning, but there is a lot of social conditioning. So I'm always, I don't worry too much about biology because there it is. I worry more about social conditioning. Mm -hmm. That's where my work has been in the world, that psychosexual piece. It's like, okay, but what did you learn through your parents, your friends, your community, et cetera? Right. Yeah. The nature versus nurture debate in, in the, in my sphere of like, libertarians, life coaches, dating, that, 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 that kind of world has tended to just swallow the, like, it's all essentialist. It's biology. That's it. And it's, and whereas, whereas a post-constructionist or whatever would say that there is that biology matters zero, it's all social conditioning, which is also obviously ridiculous because we are bio, we are animals, but there's definitely, there's certainly many times in history when culture has overlaid and totally negated nurture. You know, it's like you can, you can train a population to commit ritual suicide. If you condition them well enough, that's not good for the genes, but you know, that can be done. 
So yeah, definitely, like absolutely we are conditioned. And that's something that recently I've been talking with my guys online about an element of toxic masculinity, which is the inability to express emotion positively and regularly. That there, And that we are conditioned, of course, different ways by different cultures, but in general, men are not allowed to cry except what at the birth of their child, the death of their somebody and at a football match, right? Like those are the, th- I, I, I don't Maybe a really good orgasm too. That'd be great. Yeah, but they're but not that, allowed to like, sure. If you saw allowed. that, that, but, but, it, but they wouldn't go bragging. They wouldn't go, man, I, I, I had the cried best tonight. fucking <laughs> sex last night at the end. They're like, yeah, where did you jizz? No, 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 man. I was crying at the end. They're like, okay, dude, cool story. I would like, I would like to hear that story. Like if someone said, and then I burst into weeping tears. I'm like, whoa, cool. But most, most of the time that's not culturally acceptable. Yeah, exactly. right? So, and I deal with men, you know, I have dealt with, dealt with men for 12 years in this, in this industry where the, the issue that comes up every time, every, almost every time. And, and the only times it doesn't come up is when it should come up because the person is so numb. They don't even know the issues there, but almost universally, the real reason men come to me is not because they don't know what to say to women, right? I can, they, they don't, maybe they don't know, but I can teach them that in an afternoon, really. You know, how to have a good conversation or whatever. That's not that hard. The thing that they drag around with them, with this ball and chain their entire lives is a sense of I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. And I think, I think the masculine I'm not worthy is different than the female I'm not worthy. And I want to ask you about the female one as well. Because I suspect it's more to do with beauty and sexual uh, desirability. Whereas for a man, how does he even know he has any worth? Because if you're a woman that's like attractive enough to fuck, right? Like, okay, you're cute enough that men are going to look at you. You have some inherent value. Now, it may not be particularly, it may be cheap value. It may be not, you know, just because men think, oh, yeah, I'd fuck her. Like, it's not necessarily the most amazing thing. But it gives, uh, it gives, it orientates a woman in terms of, okay, I am desired by the opposite sex. Whereas if you're not part of this, the whatever percent of men who are, who, who've got it or have learned to get it, uh, then you can be invisible for your entire life or for very large blocks of your entire life. And so your sense of like, I am valuable as a man is only defined by your utility, which is your job, your status, your money, basically. No one does on, on mass. No one else, no one gives a fuck about your feelings, your dreams, your fears, your, you know, your tender side or whatever. It's just like, how much, what do you earn? How much do you, where, what do you do? Where do you fit into society? And that's your worth. Now the, the worth then comes in with your community and your lovers and the way you process it. But that has been the issue that I come up with is I don't feel like I'm enough. And then extrapolate that to, to get a woman I want or to live the life I want or to, or to deserve being happy. So what, I mean, first, I just want to know your thoughts on what's the, what's that like on the other side? Cause I assume that not every woman is like, I'm totally worthy. I feel confident all the time. If you have, is there like a core female insecurity? Absolutely. So you named it actually. So one of the main, the only kind of inherent powers that society deems to go to the female is this, the youthful, gorgeous beauty and it's a small range, as you know. So only a small amount of women actually fit the norm of the time. And the norm of the time has changed. I mean, you look at some paintings and some of the ladies are rather large and they have no eyebrows and, you know, just like kind of everything. Whatever was the fashion of the time, whatever men decided, exactly. we're like, we like small apple tits, huge asses and no eyebrows because that is sexy. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, a decade later, it's something else. Yeah. But um, so 
So there's this thing where you, you have inherent power because of your sexuality, and that's kind of it. And if you don't fit in the domain that can do that, then you don't really have any other inherent power as a female. Yeah. This is a very general thing, but it goes very deep. And it's not that long ago that we didn't have the right to vote. You know, we were still our husband's property, etc. I think even in the 1970s, husbands were still allowed to rape their wives and, you know, all of this stuff. It's not that long ago that the, yeah. the laws changed to protect uh, women who were partnered. So then the and then the worth issue is very interesting because also as we go back to the agreeableness if you happen to be a disagreeable female which some of us are it's and you're really shattered usually by your mother or your father they really want that suppressed they don't mm-hmm. like disagreeable girls because they're a bit too wild and they're hard to handle and you need to you know so then there's a worth issue around that too that I'm not good enough to get my mom and dad's love because I don't behave well or I'm not smart enough. Like worth, I think, is a human issue, really. And on the female side, it's often to do with it has to do a little with body and sexuality. That's a, a big one because most girls are conditioned that that's the ultimate goal in life is to find yourself a good husband, mm-hmm. right? And to attract the the right guy. But I think now more in modern days, there's also issues around just most of the ladies that I seem to interact with. It's an issue around like even if you have a great guy and even if things are going, they can't receive. Mm -hmm. They actually can't receive it because they're like, I'm not worthy of that much kindness. I'm not worthy of that much adoration. And they sabotage the connection. So worth issues are, I think, one of those initiatory rights of that maturation process for both Mm -hmm. men and women. You mentioned that earlier when you said uh, those who are uninitiated, and I think we'll need to like um, define what you mean by that in a moment. It's interesting this, what you were talking about, a woman not being able to receive. I've thought about this before, and usually I've thought about it when I'm having sex with a girl from behind. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm not always thinking this because that would be weird, but the thought has crossed my mind. I'm like, and now is the time when I have this thought. No, it's, it's the <laughs> thought has crossed my mind, and I'm, I'm glad the woman didn't know, which is that female and male sexuality, and of course there's a big spectrum, but I'm talking generally, men want to possess and they want to consume the woman. Women want to be consumed by a man who, who, who wants only that. And so they, they are the object of desire. The, the man is the desirer, right? So like, cause I think like how many times have I ever been in the middle of sex and thought, hang on, how does my body look? Never, never, like never. I know I've got a pretty nice body, but it's like, and I've talked to, you know, men before with like a buddy of mine was like, he was talking about how he was in the worst shape of his life because he was traveling and eating trash. And then he got to be with the most beautiful woman he'd ever been in, been with, in, been in. <laughs> and he, he said he was, he was having sex and he's, he was looking at his own belly, like blubbering around and then this pristine beauty. And then she said something like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't been working out much lately. Like, you know, she wasn't to, to her, she wasn't perfect enough. And she, and he was like, look at me, I'm, I've got a fucking beer belly. I don't give a shit. And that's, and so she couldn't enjoy. So he was like, that was not good sex. I couldn't. And I've known that too, because I've been with girls where they've been exquisitely technically beautiful, but I can see that. And this happens with models sometimes where they're so used to their function is to be the object of desire that they don't experience their own desire. So they don't, they don't actually like where I've been with some like, you know, cute chubby girl that I picked up at a backpack as a and it was dynamic because she's so enjoying being herself being fucked right now. 
right? She's she's just like this is all this is I'm this is all about me really. It's kind of narcissistic in a way. Whereas the model is like, oh, do I look good? In, uh, what's uh, is, oh, that position's not you know? That's where she's self consciously analyzing it. Then she can't be wild. What do you think? She can't surrender to her own feelings of joy, pleasure, and even like maybe her desires of what she would want in, in yeah. that and create that, co-create that. What do you mean by the initiated and the uninitiated? So uh, they're funny words, but they're old words. If you think of, we all come from a tribe at some point or another. So in the older days of life, young women and young men had initiations to bring them from being child to adult. And that typically happened for a young woman when she got her menzies. Now she's fertile. She's going to enter the realm of being a fertile female and available for whatever that means in their tribe. But for most of them, it's reproduction and, you know, bonding and yeah, creating you're babies. Now, you're going to become a mother within nine months, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So fertility was a huge thing to our ancestors. Huge and incredibly important thing that, that we never talk about really now, mm. other than like birth control pills and condoms. But because, but back, something... because back then it was so volatile, you know, children died so often. In, like, so whereas today, most people, if they decide they want a child, they can have it and bring it to term and, and look after it. Whereas back For the most part, yeah. You're talking about back then. I mean, we have fertility issues now where people don't have enough fertility. You know, there's, right, they're not conceiving. Them, you know, the good type. So the initiatory right for a woman is, is very symbolically around fertility. But with men... There was also initiation into manhood, but it wasn't symbolically just around his fertility. It was on his strength, his power, his courage, you know, his ability to go out and face something difficult. And we don't have these rights anymore. And in the psyche, since I'm a psychologist, I like to talk about the psyche, but in the psyche, if we don't have these moments of clear transitions where we can now come into something new about ourselves... It's like we're not oriented deeply enough in ourselves. So then we orient to everyone else's ideals and ideas and needs. So it's a very important thing. So an initiated person to me is the one who's had either a, an experience in life that was strong enough to create that shift in their psyche. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's trauma, traumatic events, but sometimes it could be pleasure and sometimes it could be actually a formal Experience. Maybe you do such things in your classes. I haven't been in there, but maybe there's formal ways of transitioning a, a, a person. So those initiations are very important because we're not meant to remain in that same childlike psyche for all of our life. And yet we're seeing it, you know, mm-hmm. here in Hawaii, <laughs> that's where I am. They call, they have this word called moise. And boys are men who are still boys. They are, so they are considered uninitiated men, men who are still, you know, going to run to mommy or expect their partner to kind of be like mommy or, you know, whatever the boys do. We all kind of know one or two of those kind of people. Um, well, there's entire countries, the most of the Mediterranean. If it's yeah, <laughs> most of Hawaii. I think that's why the term is here, because mm-hmm. it's very prevalent here. Yeah. And that's is, is a that, problem. That's possibly something to do with because I was reading about uh, various initiation rites where the Abor- Australian Aborigines, where they would be taken from their mothers, and the mothers would make this big song and dance about wailing and like crying and like no, don't leave, no, you know, faking it for the child. And the child's like no, mummy, no, and the, and the uncles would drag him away and then send him through a tunnel 
I think it was of thorns or some some kind of gauntlet, but it was he was to go through a tunnel and then he was to come out and he could never something with his mother again. I, I don't know what it was. He could never hang out with his mother in a certain way. I'm sure he could hang out with her, but he couldn't, you know, go and suck her tits or whatever, whatever the boyish things were anymore. Yeah. And the mother's and the, that ripping of the mother's cord, it was done with love. So she put on a big show of like, this is the most traumatic thing. I please don't do this to my son. So she, he gets the, like, my mother loves me to the last minute. And now she's taken away, put through this, you know, traumatic tunnel of, you know, ripped away from the mother and it's sad. And then you come out on the other end, they cover you in ashes. You're now born, you know, born again as a man. And then you have to go on to whatever the next initiation rites were. And that, have you, I don't know if you've read the book, Iron John. Yeah. Okay. So he talks about that a lot with the, you know, the, the mother's cord as well. And so... I wonder if it's, I mean, definitely our parents play a big role in, in the way that we're initiated or not or conditioned in weird ways or good ways and so on. But uh, like I know most of the clients that I come to me have shitty relationships with their father usually and often fraught relationships with the mother or, or maybe a very more coded, they were like, my mother's my favorite person, you know, I do anything for her. They have a very, very strong bond, but perhaps it is more in that lines of that. We never quite broke that father, daughter, son, mother thing so that we could become autonomous human beings. It's so crucial. It, it, it's so crucial. And I, I mean, we, we don't have formal rights. We do need formal rights, but if we don't have them, life will give us something at some point. Yeah. You could be 50 years old and finally, you know, be flat on your face and have to go through the thing that you should have gone through when you were 12 or 13. The thing that I think is interesting about this time is that, we, yes, we do not have any of these from our cultures. Like, you know, we weren't brought up in a village that told you what to do, which has disadvantages we've discussed. But the advantages is you don't have to be of a tribe. You don't have to identify as this. You were uh, this group because you went through this. And the all the initiation rites of all time, except for the Eleusinian mysteries, which we're not sure what they did there. Is that how I say it? Eleusinian, I think. The, those rites still exist and you can cobble together and choose to initiate yourself. And that's what, when I look back on myself and my friends, you know, Shay and all the guys when we were back, teenagers, early 20s, we all had shitty, absent, dead, in jail, mentally, something fucked up. The fathers were all useless, all of them, all of them. And, um, and so what I realized we were doing over years was attempting to initiate each other. And, and, and then we would go out and seek various, you know, mentors or Kung Fu teachers here or shamans there or Buddhist instructors there or, or an older guy who knew more about sex yeah. or whatever it was. And we, what we were doing was we were picking and choosing pieces of a whole bunch of different traditions and making them up and, and fusing them in order to initiate because we recognized somewhere inside ourselves that we were like, we were boys, we were immature I don't think we thought of ourselves as toxic, but we thought of ourselves as like undone, unfinished, un, you know, we have not done this. And so that is the magic of this time as well as the curse of the time is that you can choose from any of these traditions. You don't have to identify as a this or that, an ist of any type, but you can still take the archetypal journeys or the, the mythological aspects or the, uh, what do you call that? The um, collective unconscious stuff or, and then channel that through and initiate yourself. And I guess that's what you do with women when you, you've got various initiation rites for them as well, right? Yeah. So let's, let's take initiation down to a simple unit. Mm -hmm. Because even if you go through an archaic ritual, it's not always going to move the psyche. No. No, we so, know that because we can see that 
hardcore, you know, religions have forced ritual on people for thousands of years and many of them didn't enjoy it. (laughs) They enjoy it and they didn't actually learn from it. So there's an element of personal engagement where we bring our will into the experience. And that's why I say sometimes traumatic events, they can just leave you traumatized. They don't don't necessarily necessarily character building, are they? Exactly. Or if you bring your will into it, your awareness into it, and you're, you're like, wow, that was horrible. That is the worst thing I've ever experienced. And then you sit with it and you're in the inquiry. What can I make from this? What will come forth from this? Often that's the crucial initiation when the will and the desire to know and the desire like, can this serve anything or is it just useless pain? One thing I think so uh, stands in the way of that often is the hurt, like as in the, like, it's how do I transcend past something when someone did me something so wrong, you know, my parent, that, that attacker or whatever, that person who clearly was in the, you know, did something to me. This is not me just pretending to be a victim or, or like whinging. How do you, how do you move past that to get to that point where you can be, let's say more transcendent? Yeah. Well, I can talk about my own rape experience because People are shocked when I share about it. There's a couple shocking factors. The first shocking factor is I never identified as a rape victim, ever. Didn't occur to me. It didn't even cross my mind, even though I had two weeks to live post the experience. So it was a very violent experience. But it never occurred to me to identify myself as that. So I think that had a huge impact in how quickly I was able to heal and assimilate. So how, how, do you, how do you, what else is there to identify as, if not a victim in that situation? What else can you identify just as? Just myself, my essence, who I am, a human being. I, I had the, I literally had to face the choice, believe my surgeon and die, because she gave me two weeks to live, defy my surgeon and live. That was two and a half decades ago. Mm-hmm. Still so, living very well. Still living and, and really living. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a survivor. I'm a yes, thrive. I yes. thrive. That's true. And I, because I face death, I bite into life very juicily every day. It's like, how much can I get out of this day? You know, just, and maybe I'm just laying in bed, lounging and self-pleasuring all day. But whatever the thing is that I'm doing, it's how much can I allow myself to deeply be here in this experience? So that's one thing. There's a lot of hurt there. The other surprising factor that I share is I never made the punishment of that man or him coming and saying, I'm sore, or him doing anything to make it better, a condition for my healing. I just forgot about him. I didn't give a flying anything. I did write him a letter. I said, I'm dying of this thing, and you might want to get tested, because it obviously, you know, you're the only person I was exposed to, so here we go. And and so I just, as a a social responsibility, I sent him that letter. I don't know if he ever got it. But I didn't need him to go to jail or apologize or, you know, these weren't conditions that I put in front of the possibility of healing. Right. So it, it, it meant that the healing became your thing. Like, I'm, I guess you're not thing. saying that, like, rapists shouldn't go to jail. You're, you're saying that that regardless of what that person was going to do or have done to them, you were being yes. you were going to be the exactly. person that decided how to heal and. If he went to jail, I was still going to claim my healing. If he didn't go to jail, I was still claiming my healing. He was not, he didn't have any power over my choices and my journey. 
I did. Did you have like, how did you get past even feeling? I mean, surely you must've felt angry or or some, some emotions directed at that person or it was just too much. I really just forgot about him to be honest. Okay. I was too worried about living. I had to focus in the here and now. I mean, it, two weeks to live is not a long time. You have to, you've got to really pay attention and make some choices and act quickly, which I did. And I followed through with a lot of things. And then the healing journey, I think took a minimum of 10 years. If I really look at the unraveling mm-hmm. and uh, some things happened later in time where a particular lover resembled him and we acted out a similar scene and I had a full reclamation, these kinds of things, they will happen over time. So that's another surprising factor. So yes, we get hurt, but where's the power in ourselves or the person who hurt us Mm -hmm. in ourselves or the hurt itself. And so for whatever reason, I don't know why, because of my upbringing wasn't brought up with healthy psychology and there was a lot of weird things going on. I grew up on a native reservation. There's tons of abuse and intensity and craziness there. So, so it's not because I had a special uh, upbringing that I had this awareness, but I just seemed to ha- organically, whether it was my father who said, you know, a woman can do anything a man can. I don't know what phrase was given to me, but in facing these difficult moments, I just somehow rebuilt trust with myself And that's what initiatory rites are. Some of them are so painful. You could even lose a body part. Like you think about guys who go to war and they come back with half a leg and that's an initiation. Now, how are you going to do life moving forward? Are you going to sit there being all victim-y and like, or are you going to be playing like Olympic basketball in your wheelchair? There's, there's so many options. And so the, 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 which characterizes successful initiations when a person has a reclamation of their personal power, no matter the circumstance. Mm-hmm. What would you, cause like, I agree with you on this, but, and, but I, I guess as a counterpoint, what I'm thinking about is like, I see the world as a very complex place where I know that I have a whole lot of agency that a lot of other people don't get to have, right. Just because of where they're born or what the, you know, the, the level of education or their intelligence, all sorts of things where I'm, I'm always wary of like being too conservative in my viewpoint about like, you know, the individual can do anything they want or anything they set their mind to. I believe that in the sense that I follow that, that's the way I live. But I also see that, except that they can't, they can't like lots of other, you know, there's, I see that there's a whole range of like what resources people have at their disposal. And so I guess the question I have here is because I'm dealing with, uh, you know, both of us as, as therapists are dealing with people's trauma all the time. And, and a lot of the trauma that I'm dealing with is not an extreme event like this. It's, it's not a, you know, earth shattering event. It's, it's like this, the subtle soft machine of just a shit life. You know, just like with, with all, with all the plugins that that includes with the, you know, the dreary dad, the the nagging mom, the toxic friends, the, you know, the teacher that said, you'll never do anything, the town that you're in, all that stuff. Right. So I know that, you know, I have privileges and layers of privilege that other people don't, don't get to experience. But I also know that you can, if you, you know, if you have some level of agency, you're not stuck in North Korea or whatever, that you can navigate towards, towards these resources. But what would you say to someone who, cause you could easily interpret what you've said as like, if I was to use, use that as a template to give to one of my students, they'd be like, okay, I feel unworthy. You know, I didn't have a strong male role model. My mother was like, shamed me about sex and you know, I was a nerd and then girls avoided me for 20 years. Right. <laughs> which is not an uncommon story, give or take, where do those, where do they go? 
to start to reach out to try and initiate themselves or how do they, if they do have bitterness, you know, they do have thoughts of blame, you know, they're like, well, this is the fault of whoever, my mom, the, the society, hot girls, cool guys. It's very easy to apportion blame because it's true in some sense, right? Like it's in his reality, women have always been unkind to him because he's doing certain things that they find unattractive. You know, cool guys have always been assholes to him because when they get sense blood, they, they go for it, right? So he is being victimized in some senses. He's receiving the actions of people who are, you know, doing that. So where does, where do men go? Because that's, and that's been the thing that when I released that video, there was just this outpouring of grief and emotion because men are like, I need to go somewhere to heal. I need permission to do this. I need some resources to do this and I need help. And that's something that I'm fucking awful at asking for is help. And I'm, um, you know, forcing myself to do it. And men in general are, are not great at, are they good at asking for assistance to fix a fridge or whatever, but, but to actually help they they like, I can't do this. I can't initiate myself alone. I can't draw my own worthiness right now. Where do they go? It's a really good question. I, I love micro moment teachings, right? Where we can just narrow it right down. So one of the things that I use a lot when I'm working with people around, I like to call it the creative orientation to life. Like, let's be creative about this versus like being the person where everything happens to you, which is a victim stance. A, so a sovereign person understands that there is a co-creative relationship at all times. I think it was Dr. Frankel who, you know, was in the concentration camps. He became really clear no matter what they did to him and the people around him. The one thing they could never do is take away how he was showing up within himself and he was responding. And that is, I can't even imagine what that person lived through, but to come to that kind of awakening for me, was like, wow, because that's true sovereignty. Even though he was a prisoner, couldn't do anything about a situation. People are dying all over the place. That's what he learned. And then he had power in that for himself, even though he was powerless to change his scenario, let's say yeah. they couldn't take his humanity, his, essence, how he was choosing to respond to life. I think that's a very important uh, kernel of sovereignty, like the, the start of where it begins. Mm. So in a micro moment, what I tell people is like, you always have a choice. There's always a choice. Sometimes it feels like the choiceless choice, but there's always a choice. And we can choose in that moment to go into projection and story and blame and shame and all those lovely labels, but notice when you're doing it, that's enough sometimes for the initiation. Yeah. To write Just down the way you speak to yourself. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I'm using shame right now, or I'm doing the blame thing right now. You're millions of miles ahead of most human beings. If you can just name the truth of what you're doing. Yes. It's a profound and actually incredibly difficult thing because it requires a real honesty with yourself. You know, cause it's like to actually go, okay, yeah, I chose, yeah, okay. My parents did that or whatever. That's true. That happened. But now every day I am choosing to do this and that, okay. It may be a result of the line of things, but each day, if there is any free will at all, then I'm doing it. I'm, I'm thinking it, I'm running those loops. Yeah. Mm. And so in the beginning, um, so I'll give you a, an example of me. So I needed, I was a dancer and all the girls in my dance class were models, except for me. Like I was the ugly one in the bunch. So it was always very difficult for me because they were super gorgeous. And I was like this thing. So 
So relative. Well, that was hard. So in when I discovered my power as a sexual creature, then I was like, oh, I can like feel better about myself because I can seduce people and I can wear sexy clothes and get attention. And that was like quite an act of claiming power. It was, you know, unconscious power and silly way to do it. But I was young. And one day I realized the reason I'm about to put this super sexy dress on in the middle of the day, it's not a nightclub time. And I'm going to go walk down a normal street. Not It's not Mardi Gras or anything exciting. Is because I want attention. Mm. Right? And so I couldn't do anything about it, but I noticed it. I'm like, oh, I'm doing that because I feel bad about myself. As it progressed, I then noticed it more and more. And I started to go, fine, I'm, gonna, I'm still going to do the behavior. And I now know why I'm doing it. And now I'm going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So there was a progression from first becoming aware of the behavior, being able to name the behavior, being okay with still choosing the behavior, and then enjoying it. Because if I'm going to be an asshole, I might as well enjoy being an asshole. Yeah, you're like, I'm, I'm going to go out and get me some attention today and a bottle of milk. And at some point, I realized what other people think of me is none of my business. And how I feel about myself is far more interesting because that's where the radiance comes from. It's where the magnetism comes from. And so I could stop doing that behavior, but not because I was doing, you know, trying to block something. I don't think that's a healthy way to change behavior. It's just to just use shame and, and guilt and all these things to suppress it. Rather, you lose interest in it because the payoff that you get from it is less than a, a new behavior, which was me just feeling I need to give myself some love or I need to connect with people in a different way so that I can feel more myself and then, or whatever it is that I was doing. So then the behavior changes in a healthy way. So it's progressional, but those are micro moments. Just notice, okay, you have an experience and suddenly you're pissed and someone's called you an asshole. And then you need to walk away from that and go, what just happened? And sometimes it's genuinely that someone got it wrong. It's just bad timing or maybe you had a scowl on your face because you had a weird like gas in your gut and it hurt and the person took it the wrong way. We don't know what happened for them, but for you, what happened? Notice, you know, did you make their opinion have more power than what you were thinking of yourself or did it match the story that you've been fed your whole life? So you're like, see, there's proof. I am a shitty person. Mm-hmm. Right? Women are and this or whatever. Yes. So that's where it starts. It's like, if we can, at the end of our day, it's a practice I started doing a long time ago. At the end of the day, I kind of review the day and go, that was pretty good. Oh, that was shit. How would I have done that better? Let's like redo that moment. And then I actually learned something about myself. Like, oh, well, if I'd taken a breath and actually laughed instead of gotten pissed off, all this other stuff that escalated after that would have not happened. That's an extremely sophisticated and mature way to take stock of your day. I can guarantee I have never done that. Have I ever done? I yeah. guess I know I do. I stand on balconies and think, oh yeah. Well, it was given to me in my twenties through a Toltec book, mm-hmm. and I was reading uh, the Toltec teachings. The Four Agreements and, is that what it's called? Uh, that's one of the family lineages is the Ruaz family. Yes. So you can, those are available to everybody. They're hyper easy to understand. Mm -hmm. There's a really good one on love, which is the dynamic of like, what are you responsible for when you engage with another human being in your, in their philosophy, you're a hundred percent responsible for yourself, period. Mm -hmm. That's it. You're not 100, you're not even 1% responsible for what's over here. 
mm-hmm. which is very, very hard to do because we're a culture that entrains us to be codependent. So it started with, in my 20s, realizing I wasn't enjoying all the shit that was happening around me. Women hated me. Men just wanted to fuck me all the time. There was all this weird stuff going on. So the men didn't respect me. The women couldn't stand me. There's just, it was problems. It's not pleasant to have that kind of intense dynamic all the time. As I learned to understand myself and, and connect with myself. And for me, it was a journey of reconnecting my sexuality with my heart. There was a disconnect because I was manipulating men and manipulating situations and doing, using seduction and for power. And so my heart wasn't involved. And as I, through solo cultivation practice, had that reconnection, I had an awakening. I had this understanding. And suddenly it was really weird because I didn't really think I changed that much. But women started really liking me and wanting to hang out with me. And men, yeah, they might have still want to fuck me, but they respected me. Right? And and that was like, what's going on? But I integrated. And we're all going to do this differently. So wherever you are right now in your person, the first step to, and we're going to have initiations our whole life. I actually think every moment of the day is an opportunity for us to find more of our power, to be more alive and more connected all the time. And it just derives from, are you paying attention? And I think that's, that's a very important point that this like healing, if we want to call it or initiation, it it has to just be something that, is sewn into your life. Like, cause I've, I've certainly attempted to do, get it all sorted in one big go, right? Like I've gone, you know, I've gone, I'm going to the jungle and I'm not coming out until I've done, you know, until I'm enlightened or whatever. And yeah. didn't, didn't seem to work. Uh, you know, it doesn't I, work for very long. If it does. Yeah, yeah. I come out and like, Oh God, I'm like, I'm annoyed by something. I'm a bit hungry. Ah, fuck. I'm still a human. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I, as, an, as an extremist type of person where I would throw myself in 100%, I'm going to do Buddhism, fucking only Buddhism, do shamanism for a bit. And then my intention was to break through and in some ways to kill the old me, right? Like it was to break through, the old me is gone and the new uber excellent me appears. And I've seen over the years that if there is a way to do that, I haven't managed to find it. And... It is a big mistake and it's a common mistake from my clients with they come in and they'll literally say things like, I've got to crush the old me. You know, I've got to like destroy the old like way, you know, the the part of me that was fearful and all those things that they, they want to change and that girls didn't like, or that they didn't get respect for. They hate that person, right? That, that yesterday person that was their entire life. And I always say to them, like, you know, I need to crush that and I need to become this something else. I'm like, well, yes, you do need to evolve, but going to war against yourself and hating your, your self that was alive an hour ago and thinking you need to obliterate that person completely to rejuvenate means that you will be fighting and ha- fighting with yourself. And it also has the effect of, oh, hang on, what am I trying to say? I can't remember, but what do you think about that? <laughs> no, I, I love that. And I, I, I agree. And we think sometimes initiation stuff is fancy. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, incredibly ordinary it's do i have respect of myself in this moment kind of ordinary and that is an extraordinary shift for some people yes yeah and that can and that can exemplify by a guy finally rolling up to a girl and saying hello or a woman putting a foot down and saying no or you know there's like those those choice points which are mundane choice points The, the choice to look up and walk down the street and look people in the eyes instead of down 
Like that's an, that is an initiation. That's me going, okay, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to hide anymore. Just, just that. Exactly. It's a very ordinary, there's nothing like mystical about it. Mm. And that's what, why I was saying every moment of our life can have that quality where we become more of who we actually are. We don't become less. We don't get rid of stuff. What's your, allowed to, like, what are your practices with that? Cause I know you're a sensualist. You're a, you're a person who you use words like juicy and delicious, which I never use. Mm. Yeah, but I'm also female. Actually, no, no, you know what? Actually, I think in, the, in recent years I have started saying words like that. But Depends I would just, what you're talking about, I'm sure. Yeah, actually, no. Mate, these days I might talk about a juicy olive tree. So you're a person that like is a, a specialist at pleasure, I would say. Like you, you uh, and in conjunction with your partner, and maybe we can segue into talking sort of a bit, bit about how you design your life or lifestyle design. Because I'm, as part of my launch, I'm talking to some people who have designed ex- exceptional lives. And there's not that, that many that I know, but I know some that, and you, you guys are definitely at the top of the list. In terms of, you've very clearly chosen where you want to live based on the quality of life. So when I first met you guys, you were living in Bali and, and then in Hawaii and that's, and then in LA and in Venice Beach. Like you chose places that were, beautiful and you were you had an immersion in nature you've chosen to like you you're a successful business lady but it's clear that you didn't you know money wasn't the only thing you were trying to do you found something where you get to be passionate and and express your joy as part of your vocation uh and then just you know i don't know what you guys do every day but like every time i check in there's always something very fun happening you know it's like you guys are going off to cuba to learn latin dance or you know, Sol's got himself a new motorbike and he's hooning around with you on the back or, you know, you're off going and doing some tantric. Uh, I know we're not supposed to use the word tantric. Um, you know what I mean by tantric. Off doing a woman's circle and so on. But that, and whenever I hang out with you, because you know that I'm often grumpy, it's hard to be grumpy around you. I try, but it is hard, especially when you, when you hug me or like you, because because you are radiating in a way that I don't really understand because I've, I don't think I've experienced life like that on a consistent basis. But you, but you radiate an enjoyment of life all the time, as far as I can see. I'm sure you feel sad, and, and I'm sure when you do that, you do it beautifully. When you're pissed off and depressed, even if you're an asshole some days, I'm sure that you are still like drawing the juice out of being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> what, like, that's not just genetic. That's not just because you're an attractive lady. That's not just because you live in Hawaii. What are some of the ways that you have cultivated and maybe even more importantly, ways you've helped other women cultivate who it's not so new, not so obvious to because you've made a lifelong journey of this, whereas you're getting someone coming in and going, okay, how to experience life through a blissful lens as opposed to a oh, life is tough lens. What, what's ways that you introduce that or practices or, you know, ways of thinking just, it doesn't have to be an exhaustive list, but just some things you think of. Yeah, sure. And number one, I think it's, it comes from, this is gravy for me. If you remember, I was given two weeks to live. And, but that wasn't the, the first time my life was threatened. When I was 12, I was in a camper van. The whole thing exploded and I nearly died then as well. So I had 38% of my body burnt. And, Jesus Christ, I didn't know that. You know, just, I've had some very intense things that have like, do you want to live or not? Right? So I think a lot of us are complacent because we've never actually faced our death and we're young enough where it's not really something we're thinking about. Yeah. When you're older, you think about it. But when you're young, you just don't think about those things until you have a bad car accident or, you know, something like this. So because of that, I have this attitude of death sitting on my shoulder and whispering to me, like, how much are you going to live today? Mm. How alive are you going to be? Was that an alivening choice or did that actually take life away from you? 
That's always a question for me, James. Will this decision that I'm about to make bring more aliveness or less? That's it. It's not complicated. It's so simple. And it's like, and I know my body now, it's evolved so much uh, in terms of my intimacy with my body. I know specifically that if I eat this thing over here, I'm going to feel shit. But I'm no longer even attracted to it. It's not even, it just looks like cardboard. It, mm-hmm. It's not exciting to me. And the things that make me feel really in, intensely, vibrantly alive, I'm salivating thinking about them. And that is evolutionary. It changes a, with time. So I'm right. constantly paying attention to this creature body that we all have, one of, and it's informing me that our sensuality is literally how we make sense of reality. Very, that's what sensuality is. That's our inputs. That's, that's the yeah. only, it's the only way we can experience the planet, really. It's so really, it's if we heighten sensuality, what happens? You heighten your life. Yeah. But we also heighten awareness because we used to live in threatening areas and we had to be aware of threat when it was simply a thought in the predator's mind before the predator was even close to us. Mm-hmm. And you can, because I spent a lot of time in African wilderness, I take women out on full walk-in safari so there's no tents, no jeeps, no lodges. We're walking in a predator-rich place, sleeping on baboon ledges, listening to the lions and the hyenas and all that all night. I've been um, on safari once, but it was a very nice gentleman's affair with jeeps and yeah, tents yeah. and everything. <laughs> it's not, I didn't enjoy that. I felt separate from nature. I wanted to be mm. part of nature. And that has been the most impactful teaching to bring women into a direct experience of their essence of this idea that each one of us actually belongs to life. It's a very interesting thing when you orient to belonging to life, because now you don't bargain with anybody. I don't need to belong to you, this group, this person, this country. I belong to life. So wherever I go, I belong there. Mm-hmm. And, and that was taught to me through the wilderness, yeah. right? So anyway, so when you're out there, you have to am- hyper amplify sensuality and you become deeply aware of everything is reading everything. Every animal, if you're a little bit angry, it will be reflected back to you. If you're a little bit afraid, it's reflected immediately back to you. We're no different, but we sort of... It's almost like uh, intentional blindness that we have. Oh, it's being very specific. Like, I mean, because modern religions have very specifically said we are not animals. In fact, we animals are in our service. Nature is to be tamed and conquered. And any animalistic things that pop up inside humans are things to be repressed with the use of morality. Right, so that, so the, it's it's written into most religions that they are separate from nature. It's part of it's part of how they maintain control. Man, unfortunately, um, what that does in the psyche, as you know, is this feeling of separateness and then the shutting down of sensuality. Mm-hmm. But what one of the things I teach women is you have to accentuate your sensuality. You need to become deeply aware because it's how I've been able to get away from even predator like behaviors in men. Because I can feel it long before it's a problem. Yeah. And I listen to those signals immediately. I do not even question it for a moment. We need to do that. So more sensuality is actually the answer to staying more safe, not turning that off. Right. That's interesting, isn't it? So like the sensualist is, has, has better hyper-awareness is better able to read their environment, read threats. So it's actually a survival skill to be really enjoying eating that peach. 
Absolutely. <laughs> it's not only a survival skill, it's also a thriving skill because if you're paying attention, there's so much beauty available all the time. So, you know, I don't know if you read my first book, but there's this whole chapter on omni-orgasm and how I believe every human's born with that state and then it's taught out of us. And some of us get to return there, but very few of us choose to explore in that direction. But what that means is that every cell in my body can actually have that experience and that I'm no longer uh, limited to the human range. I can watch a sunset and have an orgasm. I can smell a beautiful smell and let pleasure just like, you know, through the whole body and enjoy it. Let myself enjoy it shamelessly because it's actually my body communicating. Yes, we're alive. That's all orgasm actually is. It's just like, yes, we're alive. That's why I think we're so into it. We want to experience it. We're curious about it. We want to do it more and more because there's a, an element of our own essence that craves feeling intensely alive. And unfortunately, we think it's limited to genital you know, experience. And we don't remember that we have this incredible body that's intensely sensual and we actually optimally function if we run pleasure in the system versus stress mm-hmm. in the I think the person that lives most in the flow state is the person who can consciously self-modulate from stress to relaxation, that kind of uh, sympathetic, parasympathetic modulation. They become very, very good at doing that. So another skill set I teach the women is a state called relaxed arousal, which sounds kind of contradictory because you're either aroused or you're relaxed in terms of nervous system. It's not true. If you modulate appropriately, you can arouse and maintain relaxation. Mm -hmm. And then they've now mapped in the brain. When you do that, you access courage, confidence, creativity, transcendence. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. So now you can use all of life as your lover and you can use breath and just awareness. Where am I? Is this stressful? If I take a few breaths, can I relax even in this difficult conversation? Yeah. And you become this master, not only in the bedroom, but like of pleasure outside of the bedroom as well, which is really important because the more pleasure you have outside of the bedroom, the more you can amplify it in the bedroom. Yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting how you were talking about, um, like in terms of that relaxed arousal state leads to things such as confidence and courage. And that's a really interesting thing, I think, for a man to hear because we are told, told that confidence and courage and like competitive advantage would kind of be the things that we're striving for as opposed to we're not taught to be good and nice and smile, whereas the woman, women are taught to you know, be agreeable. We're taught to, to win, essentially. Right. So at, at, almost at any, it depends on then the ethics of your parents about what means necessary is, is okay. But I know that a lot of men who consider themselves to be timid or unconfident, particularly with, with women, they, they think that there is something that men, there is something who a courageous man has something inherent in him that this guy's lacking. And even if I tell him, look, man, you know, it's, it's a process. Everyone, you know, everyone can do it step by step. Da, da, da. He's like, yeah, I get, I get the idea, but, but I, I've never, th- I, I know what I'm saying is true because I, true in the sense, I know I'm not courageous or confident because I feel inside myself and there's nothing there. There's no courage there or in this scenario. But what you've talked about there is it's not, you know, that there was just 
this guy who happened to be the most courageous and that he has courage and he's so awesome and alpha. And so that's why he did the courageous thing. You're talking more about that. This is a, that this we're creating a, a foundation or a, an environment where those kinds of qualities can grow because you're right that confidence can't come out of stress. Like, I mean, I, I can be stressed sometimes and then relax sometimes and I can still develop confidence. But if my overriding structure is feeling under attack, feeling pressure, feeling tension, and I'm, and I'm feeling it, and then I'm amplifying it by putting my body like this or whatever other stressing things that I do, then of course I can't, that's not a state where confidence or courage can grow out of. So it's like, no, and, hmm. and when you are engaged, like you feel stressed, your frontal prefrontal cortex goes offline. So all those intelligent things you want to say, you can't. You're like, go back to Neanderthal, like, eh, bleh, bleh, sounds, because that's what happens to the amygdala when you go into stress. But if you understand modulation, where if you just take a few breaths, like the one where you purse your lips and the exhale is longer, like just, you can do that anywhere. Just do a few of those. You're, you actually hold, modulate the whole nervous system. And now that prefrontal cortex can come back online when you ask it an interesting question. Like, you know, make it notice something unusual. Like she's got really amazing shoes. Like you just something weird that you wouldn't normally think about. You probably just think more, but or something, but, but you go and you notice something unusual, the prefrontal, the what I have to pay attention here. And now it's back online. You've, you're continuing the, the breathing to modulate. So you're getting, you're still aroused and you're aware, but now you're relaxing. The prefrontal is engaged because it's interesting and different. And now you're available to even say something goofy if you want. Like, mm. it doesn't matter what you say. Because for most of us women, it's not what you say. It's, is it genuine? To, you know, because I get, some guys talk about my shoes. I'm like, you're not looking at my shoes. You are so not looking at my shoes. But I don't say that to them. I'm like, yeah, they're hot. But I know they're looking at my ass. Like, it's. They're just, so just trying to do whatever they can. They're just throwing out, I don't know how this works. What do you sit trying to tell what are the girls like? Shoes. But I love it, I, right? I, I, I think love it. Because... Look, I'm just trying to just give me a fucking chance, all right? I'm a nice guy. <laughs> exactly. It's like, and if, if you are saying things because you want to get something out of someone, you're a beggar. But if you're saying things mm-hmm, because you love to elicit a state so I love flirting. I flirt with everybody, even the waiters, someone at a checkout counter. And the way in which I flirt is they'll often ask me, like, is there anything else you'd like or need? You know, whatever. I'm like, yes. And they're like, what? Because that's not the answer they usually get. So the yes makes their eyes go up and they always look a bit startled. And so now they're more online with me. They're not in, you know, the robotron kind of behavior. And so I love a smile. And they just break out almost all the time in this huge smile. And we both feel awesome. And then I leave. I never see them again. But that wasn't because I wanted to fuck them. I just wanted to see someone light up. That's what arousal is. If you want to turn someone on, light them up. How can we light them up? And if you are approaching someone with a desire to light them up, not to get something, but to light them up, you're going to, it doesn't matter what you say. They're going to feel that intention. Like, wow, this person kind of like, I felt good. Thank you. My day's better now. And maybe that's it. That's all you get from them and off they go. But you're going to feel full from that because you've just lit someone up and you've had a moment of a beautiful like connection. And sometimes it can go into something else, as you know. But but that intention also is, you know, when you are in fight or flight, you're going to be graspy or you're going to have this kind of beggar mentality. So that self-regulation 
is absolutely crucial. And that comes with, you know, what we were saying earlier about emotional awareness, like what state am I in? And just admitting it like, oh, I'm super nervous. That's okay. Be nervous. Doesn't matter. You don't have to be not nervous. Many people are nervous. Then they speak on stage all the time, for example, and they're always nervous before they go on. That's a healthy thing. It means that you're not bored with life. You're aware that something exciting is about to happen. So it's good to be nervous most of the time. And then you can self-regulate. You take a few of those breaths and you say, well, how could I light her up? What would that be like? Or how can I light him up? And that's really one of my greatest pleasures in life is how can I light them up? What would light them up? You're very good. How does that though, because I, like I talk about this similar stuff with guys, but then there's this funny dichotomy here because especially if it's a, a, me going to talk to a woman that I do have an agenda. I absolutely do. Like I do want to light her up. I do want to give her pleasure. And I also want something. <laughs> and there's, there's good ways and bad ways to do that. Cause we've seen that what you, cause you, someone could take that, what you said and misinterpret that as like, okay, I need to do everything for her. I need to, you know, make her feel great all the time. You know, but the nice guy thing, which is like, I give, I give, I give. And hopefully I get no, something no. back. Yeah, What's the difference between like just, you know, giving in an, in a covert contract needy kind of way the, and being able yeah, to your saying. intent, I guess. There's a difference between, again, the beggar trying to get something and the guy who has a gourmet plate, like he's good. He's like, if I don't get laid, yeah. I'm not going to die. Mm-hmm. If I do get laid, it'll be great. But there's a gourmet plate and your desire is there. Mm-hmm. Desire is a magnificent thing. We want to have desire and we want to allow our desire to pull us forward toward whatever it is we're moved to move toward. That's healthy. And to be honest, they've done a lot of research on this. The majority of women's desire does not activate until they feel desired. Yes. So you're holding your desire as a offering, not as a place of the beggar needing to get something. You get to have it and you get to offer it. Right. Because, right? because as I offer her, uh, coming back to what I was saying earlier, that kind of female narcissism of sexuality that I offer you my, and of, of course she needs to be able to sense or intuit in some way that I have some options. Like if it's like my desire is only for you, cause that's the only option I got. That's not so good. But if she senses that, okay, this man could choose another, maybe he's not, can't choose everyone, but he certainly has some choice. And then he's, rawness that animal desire the beast he's now offering to unleash that on her and therefore she is if she decides to open that gate then she is going to get to feel the blossoming of being the desired female yeah so the important thing here is to enjoy all the steps all the moments like enjoy you see someone you're like wow take that in and let it fill you with pleasure like actually have a moment Because the pleasure is not just in the penetration of a vagina. There's so much pleasure to be had long before that occurs. Every step of the way. And how much can you, like, get the juiciness out of that morsel? Just, you know, it's like, I'm hungry. Okay, well, what do I want to eat? I want, you know, this thing over here. And then the whole process of going and getting the thing that you want to satiate that hunger can also be pleasurable. Oh, absolutely. And as a seducer, it must be because... Otherwise, the, like 90% of the job is shit. Like, you know, you know, if, if I don't enjoy all the stuff up to sex, then I'm like, oh no, I have to do that all again just to get laid, which is what, what meant. I mean, I certainly feel like that sometimes with a girl where I'm like, well, we probably shouldn't be hanging out if that's how I'm feeling. But 
I'll do it anyway. Um, but you know, in general, it's like I thoroughly enjoy almost all steps except for the one that I hate and will never, never like is sitting across from someone I haven't fucked yet having a meal with them. I hate that. I hate doing that. But any, every other stage, if we, if we sit next to each other or have a burrito on the street, that's fine. I love, and that's why I haven't given up. You know, that's why I still do this is because each time I've had interactions that lasted five minutes, we never saw each other again, but where I walked away, I go, whoa, that was better than some of the shitty sex I've had in my life. And women can sense that, right? A woman can knows when a man loves being with women, right? He, not, not that he loves pleasing them all the time or being sycophantic or being, you know, a, a, a doormat for them, but that he loves what he gets out of women. And I think also on the other side, I know, and everyone that I've seen meet you, right? I've been hanging around with you in group situations. They know that you love life and men, right? It's obvious that you love men, the maleness of them, and it's not necessarily sexually directed. It can, you can, you can, you know, it can be very platonic, but that there is something about the men that you love. And therefore that makes you exquisitely attractive to men, right? As you know, or in the mix of all the other qualities you have. And I know that for myself, like the biggest deal breaker I have with women is women with no curiosity because I know they're not curious about themselves either. Really? Like they, if, if they're like, if they have no interest in anything outside of the Instagram feed, then I know she's probably not going to be great in bed right? cause she's not really curious. She doesn't want to know about me really. Maybe she'll sleep with me for some other validation reason, but she doesn't really want to know me and she doesn't really want me to know her and she doesn't really even want to know herself. Right? So that doesn't matter if she's a catwalk model, she's ugly as a human. And that's, you know, people, men are coming to me. They're always trying to figure out how do I make myself attractive? Essentially, like how do I create attraction? Like it's some, you know, fusion of <laughs> that you do in some kind of uh, big machine. Like how do I build attraction out of nowhere? And I need, I need a woman to be attracted to me, but I don't even know. I have no concept of what it feels like to be attractive. And you do, you know, you feel attractive. And so people feel you are attractive. Mm. Well, magnetism, I do feel is self-generated. There is an element of it, obviously, that that if you fit in the beauty standards of the time you're living in, that makes it easier. But you can have plenty of beautiful people who are not magnetic and you have plenty of more of the ordinary or people outside of the beauty spectrum, incredibly magnetic. So that's something we can actually do for ourselves. That's part of the solo cultivation work that I do with women. And trust me, when it doesn't matter their age. Like some of my clients, one was 90. Like it's a big range from the youngest was 11, the eldest was 90. And so, and all through that spectrum, when those women really land in their bodies and they're deeply present in their sensuality and they've given themselves pleasure in a way that's deeper than what they normally do. They're magnetic and they don't know always what to do with it. Cause some of them are very ordinary or even overweight. And they're like, I've never had attention ever. Like it's, it's like, you know, bees to honey. And I was like, enjoy it. You don't have to engage with it if you don't want to, but it is your gift to the world to light people up. And so it doesn't matter the age and it is self-generated. And a person who's magnetic often also is just enjoying life. Right. You imagine someone eating something. Yeah. Eating something, but you're not paying attention to it or you're eating it and you're just having mouth gasms. I had a man who would take me out for dinner only to watch me eat because (laughs) he just loved the sounds that would come from giving.